Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often a hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed with timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Rami Kali, the co-founder and CEO at Compose. Rami first came to this country as a refugee and his story is as inspiring as it is practical. He takes us through starting a company whilst at university, pivoting halfway through and the difficulties and advantages of starting a company as a refugee. It was his sense of calm and perspective that took me back slightly, despite a unique journey both personally and professionally. There aren't too many people who make the decision straight out of university to go and build a company. Hmm. Um, Had you always wanted to do that? Yes. Definitively, I, I can say I can say yes for sure. Um, I think, for me, the allure of, of a very creative work environment was was something that I just could not resist, and I felt that working on my own thing was the most sort of creative possible environment because it was really up to me to define what that was, what to pursue, what industry to pursue, and so on. So I think in that regard, I always knew, you know, I wanted to do my own thing. I did a very short stint working at a bank in in software engineering. It was six month placement. And you know, I enjoyed it, it was all right, but it lacked that element of creativity. So I think that was really, Mm. you know, it was very clear to me at that point that, you know, this is definitely something I wanted to do. Uh, And I think something quite, um, uh, something that relates really to who I am, to my like character, I, I, I would say is, I want to say there's an element of like risk appetite, but actually as things have progressed and maybe this is just hindsight, uh, maybe this is just with hindsight, but I feel like people sometimes overestimate the amount of risk um, that, that, that is required when it comes to building a startup. And it's not all people. I think there are some cases where it is overestimated, um, but uh, yeah. That's just my, my, my thoughts on it. How did you go about evaluating the, the risk when you started? Naively, I didn't. I just straight in, to be honest. Um, the thing for, for, for me, it was, it was, you know, there was, a, there was actually a decision to be made. I had a return offer to that bank, uh, as you know, as I'd done my placement in my like penultimate year at university and. Um, generally, if you do well enough, they'll give you a return offer once you graduate to come back. And I had that return offer. But by the time, you know, I was due to sort of go back to that bank, um, we had already started our startup. We were um, sort of working on that. Uh, we hadn't raised any money just yet. And so it was, there was this decision, you know, do, we, do I take this leap of faith? You know, I, I don't have any money. I don't have any income. Um, and just try and and see where this goes. Um, we were, you know, we were fundraising at the time. We actually were raising a pre-seed round, 
Um, and we could feel that it was very close. But as I'm sure you know, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket with fundraising. You really want to be, you know, you don't want to, there, there's always a risk, you know, it doesn't happen. Um, but I guess I took that risk and it, it worked out. Did you go f all in on Compose or Quantarium, whatever it was then? Did you go all in on that mm -hmm. before or after you turned down going back to the bank? No, it was, it was Quantarium at the time. We, we, we've actually pivoted to building what, you know, Compose today. We mm -hmm. were actually called Quantarium. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. a, another story we can dive into if you like. Um, but uh, I had turned down the offer. I, I, so in my final year of university, um, we had started working on, on, on the startup, Quantarium at the time. Um, and I, I basically, you know, it was really my full-time thing. I completely neglected my studies. I, I, I'm honestly a bit surprised I managed to graduate uh, that final year. Um, so I, by, by the time that, that, you know, I had to make that decision on the offer, it was, you know, I'd already committed all my, you know, at least my time. Uh, all of it was, was really uh, uh, sunk into sort of the startup. Um, so I, I, was, I was invested emotionally. I was invested with all my time. Um, and so I, I knew it, it just had to be done. Someone's perception of starting a company is that the risk is high. Uh, when actually perhaps the risk is slightly lower. But in your case, it was just like, well, I'm in it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I am a, I, uh, this is what I was trying to say. I am a risk taker as far, you know, personality-wise, I think, uh, more so than maybe the average person. But um, I, I was in it anyway. Yeah, I was happy to take that risk. I think in hindsight, I learned that actually, or, or my perception of that risk evolved. Uh, having, you know, talked to more people in the VC space, investors, other founders, looked at sort of both success and failure stories and sort of how that plays out uh, mm. on a variety of scales via, uh, with a variety of colleagues and so friends. And that's where I started adjusting mm. my perception of that risk. And, you know, I compared myself to my, you know, some of my classmates who maybe didn't go down that entrepreneurial route, went down sort of a more classical sort of corporate path. Um, and maybe always wanted to, you know, do something startup-y, but were, were put off by that risk. I felt that f in that case, maybe they were overestimating the risk a little bit. At least now, that's how, how I see it. It must have made pivoting Quantarium into mm. Compose that bit different. What happened? That is uh, a great question. I mean, for, for a lot of people who hear about our pivot, they, it's a bit shocking at face value, but I, I, trust me, it does make sense. Uh, so Quantarium was a crypto startup. Um, we were building a platform for institutional OTC trading. And Compose is a productivity app that brings together all your different inboxes into one uh, app. So drastically different at face value, but mm. there is some chronological sort of... Uh, uh, logic here. There, there is there is chronology. Um, I mean, I, to start off, I think fundamentally the reason we pivoted was that there was a lack of founder market fit. You know, we were excited about the market, but we weren't necessarily the best people to tackle it. Um, I think we underestimated the regulatory legal challenges and just how big a proportion of, you know, that core business challenge you're solving was going to be the regulatory and legal challenge. Um, none of us, you know, are lawyers or have any sort of extensive legal background. So 
that's something we kind of underestimated, I think, uh, building, you know, an institutional crypto platform, trading platform, um, which, you know, sounds a bit silly now, but uh, yeah. It takes a huge amount of self-awareness to figure out when to change jobs based off your mm. your own your own self and your own um, interests and passions but it must take an even greater amount of self-awareness to change the direction of your company based on who you are and what your passions are how did you deal with that emotional turmoil at the time you're right it it, it it's it wasn't easy by by any measure. It was there was a lot of soul searching for sure, and and I think th this is one of those cases uh, or one of those situations where having uh, a, a great co-founding team, I think, really comes into play. Having great co-founders who you can sympathize with, who can sympathize with you, and who can sort of you know we can bounce off each other and and, and you know make sure we're we're keeping things you know, in, in line as far as what's in the best interest of the company, but also supporting each other along that route, because that might not be the easiest route to walk along as a person, as a human, right? If I recall, you know, looking back at it, uh, we had this meeting with a potential, like a potential client for Quantarium. And this was really, I think that was the moment we knew we just had to pivot. Um, and on the way there, it was me and my co-founder in the tube, <laughs> We were we were on the tube, and one of the components of 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 the Quantarium platform was this messaging component where traders could chat to each other. Um, and we were just it, it it had felt you know it had felt like we were barking up the wrong tree. Like it it you know you feel it sometimes, and it's difficult. But you know obviously there's that saying where you just founders never quit, and you have to keep going and push and push and push. But sometimes, and I think there are special there are things. I, you know, based, you know, having gone through it, I think there are things you can look out for that can sort of maybe help you distinguish between when to quit and when not to quit. But that day, you know, on the tube, we just looked at each other. This was on the way to the meeting and we just, looked, we just knew, you know, regardless of how that meeting went, we knew it, it, you know, we had to do something else. And we had seen like an ad for some, something messaging related on the tube in the, in the London underground. And, we both looked at each other like maybe we should just like double down on that angle um, of of this and 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 forget all the regulated stuff, all the trading, all the all the uh, fintech sort of side of that business, and, and and let's maybe look at the communication and, and the messaging side, um, and that's really how that pivot started, um, and that's where it sort of evolved, and here we are. How did you check against that bias that we all have that the grass is always greener? How did you make sure that when you were making that decision, you mm. you weren't just getting out of the pain that you were in in that moment? I think we, you know, we 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 felt like it was time to make that pivot, and we had great early investors who we were able to sort of be very honest with and very transparent with um, uh, very early on. First minute capital led our pre-seed. Uh, that was the very first round we we raised, and it was a small amount of cash, but it was really what sort of got us going. Um, so we, you know, we went back to the drawing board. We sat them down and we said, we think this is probably, you know, not the best path for 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 us for this team. And I still remember they they told us, well, we've we've backed you as a team mainly because it's you know it was a very early stage deal, um, 
we've backed you as a team and, and we, we love how you do things and your energy and um, we'll back you in this new thing. But let us know how, how it pans out. Let's, let's see what, what you want to do. Mm. Um, so we went back to the drawing board and then sort of Compose was born and they were extremely supportive. Um, and, and I actually remember one thing they, they did mention. They said, you know, up, up to that point and even you know, beyond that, we were still running on the pre-seed money as, you know, once we had made the pivot for a good, for a good while. Uh, and it was really, you know, towards the end of that runway. Um, and we managed to really squeeze the lemon. And uh, I remember having a chat a few months down the line after we had done the pivot with one of the partners at First Minute. And they said, um, they said they actually referred to us as the cockroaches in their investment committee because they hadn't seen anyone, any team survive sort of all these sort of apocalyptic events in, in, the, in an early startup's sort of life uh, and, and sort of, you know, managed to pull through. Um, so we're very proud of that. We wear that as a badge of honor. Uh, apparently they, they now ask in their ICs, you know, is, is this team, are they going to be cockroaches? Will they survive? Hmm. What do you think? made them what do you think makes the best cockroach perseverance 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 um i think you know it's it's we were perseverant you know it, we did make a pivot but we persevered uh it's it's not that we weren't perseverant um you have to have a very it, there's some level of it, it's tricky i think it's tricky because being a cockroach means different things to different people. Uh, you know, the level at which you can really like, let's, let's like, you know, let's live on like tinned beans or, or you know, there's, yeah. there are different levels. Um, and, and for some people it might not work. Um, but I think it's a mindset, you know, you have to be financially responsible and, and really understand, you know, your management accounts. I think it sounds a bit boring, but understand your runway and your monthly burn and your costs um, mm. and just be comfortable making hard decisions when when the going gets tough um, and and really you know turn down the lights and make sure you're uh, steering the ship uh, through the storm I guess um, it sounds very anecdotal but uh, I think it's a very very much you know on a per case by case basis but it's really all about persevering through it uh, and building a framework that allows you to persevere without burning out is extremely important, I'd say. It's interesting that we began that conversation by talking about your pivot. In other words, like a decision mm. to quit and start something new. But yet we ended it with your investors saying that you never give up and that you've got complete perseverance. Why did they not think the opposite? I think at the early stages you know, of a, of a startup, um, the only thing that that you know you can really bet on, uh, and 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 this is especially true from a venture capitalist perspective, is the team because a lot can change in the early days, and this is something I, I still tell our team today. You know, seed stage startup is is about experimentation. It's about you know let's let's hypothesize, let's follow it through, and if it works, it works. Let's double down. If it doesn't, the sooner you can. You know, the sooner you're on to the next hypothesis, the better. Um, and so I think a pivot is really that at a very high level. Um, and so it's, you know, when, when, when you're a pre-seed company, it, 
yeah, these things happen, and it's in, in a lot of cases, you know, there there were many options that we could have gone down. We could have, you know, called it quits and just returned whatever was left of the money to investors and said, well, let's wind this down. It didn't work. Um, but I think in in that regard, we persevered through the experimentation, through the hypothesizing. We tried something; it didn't work. We tried again and again and again, and then something did stick. What stuck? What came next? Uh, compose, compose stuck. Um, I guess it, it, I'll tell you a bit about how how, how it came about. Uh, you know, we talked about that messaging component, but really, what what we realized, you know, in that time, you know, trying to build something in the crypto world, we did take away some very valuable insights. We saw that that work that workflow was very fragmented. You know, when you're trading large blocks of crypto uh, at an institutional level, at least back then, you had to use like five or six different platforms that weren't necessarily built for purpose, very clunky to use. You know, think, you know, you're, you're placing, or, you know, a $4 million Bitcoin order on WhatsApp. The, the trading desk jumps on a Zoom call with you to verify your identity. They just, you know, they want to see if it's you on the video. Uh, they'll use a spreadsheet to like document the trade, they'll lock in the price, they'll send it back on WhatsApp, so on. And so that that problem, we, we sort of started taking a step back from fintech, from crypto, and we saw that actually workplace communication is pretty, pretty fragmented. Uh, if you think about what an inbox means today, it, it's not just your email anymore. You know, back in the day, an inbox meant your email inbox. No one, you know, no one really questioned it. But today, an inbox means so much more for teams. It's your email, it's your team messaging, something like Slack or maybe Microsoft Teams. It's your um, GitHub if you're a developer, Figma if you're a designer, uh, Cord if you're a recruiter. Uh, there's just so many inboxes you have to be on top of. And sometimes one project sits, sits across you know, three, four, five different platforms. H- how do you keep on top of all that? Um, and you know, things, things like real-time collaboration has accelerated this trend. You have more collaborative tooling that requires an inbox so that when you're not collaborating in real time, you need to be notified of updates, of changes. Um, you know, Notion is a great example here. You, you and I could be working on a Notion page, but then I'll, I'll clock off and you make some edits. Maybe you ask me a question. Suddenly Notion has to build an inbox on top of their product. It's not their core value prop, but every one of these platforms has built, has built one. Um, and that's where we think the problem lies, really. And that's where Compose comes in. What we're trying to do here is build one inbox that sits across these tools on top of them. So the user simply connects their accounts and suddenly they have uh, a, a view of you know, the, their project across email, Slack, Figma, Notion, and GitHub. Mm. So if, you know, if you're a project manager and an engineer asks a question in GitHub, you're not gonna, that's not gonna fall through the cracks anymore. It's 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 uh, it's much easier to to triage everything in one place. The the experience is uniform. You can snooze notifications whether they've come in from Notion or GitHub or Linear or Slack or email uh, till till you're ready to handle them. Uh, it's it's things like that. That's what Compose Compose brings. How has working on a product that you feel a clear and found a market fit for and you have a deeper passion for? Mm impacted mm. y- yourself and how you go about your work? I think to bring this back to the the topic we, we were talking about at the very start, it, it, it creates for a very fulfilling sort of uh, um, 
workplace for very fulfilling for very fulfilling work in general. And I think one great thing about a product like Compose is that we can really dog food the product. We we use Compose. It's actually uh, you know one of the first measures for us of product market fit is can our team use Compose and can we glean those benefits of having you know one inbox. Um, and so it's it's something that I think myself and all the team feel very excited about because you you have a direct impact and you know we have a channel in our slack uh, where we flag bugs we encounter where we flag feature requests we want to see in the product and we pri prioritize those and it's always you know it, it creates for a far more enjoyable far more rewarding you know experience I think I'm personally speaking what difference has it mm -hmm. made to, to your life I mean, a huge difference, frankly. <laughs> I don't know where to start. It's, uh, it feels like a, a much better, a much bigger opportunity for us to pursue. Uh, it feels more fulfilling on a personal level. It feels like, you know, one, one of the frustrations we had in the crypto space was that, especially in that, you know, building for an institutional client was that it, you needed to get it right out of the gates. You can't ship anything that's, that's bugged. It, you, you, you just cannot risk client funds, you know, uh, uh, on, on a silly bug. Um, and so iteration cycles were much larger. It was much harder to validate and build and iterate quickly. Uh, whereas now with Compose, it's the, the, there's a lot less uh, shipping anxiety. And it's actually something that we felt um, almost you know, when you when we don't ship for a long time, we get we all feel frustrated. We feel like, oh, we've been working on something for far too long now. Like it's, we just want to you know close out this project, ship this feature, ship this bug patch, um, and push it out. And so, I think on a day to day, you know, on a day to day, it's just more satisfying to to have that shorter sort of iteration cycle, and to be more in tune with sort of product feedback. What drawbacks do you think? it's had on you going straight into your entrepreneurial journey versus finding work? I think there's a lot that we've, you know, I've been learning by doing that maybe I could have learned by observing. I think that's probably the, the biggest drawback. Uh, and that could have maybe short-circuited a lot of that learning. Having said that, I think there's a lot of value in experiencing things for yourself and learning by doing. So I, I, I see it, you know, really as a double-edged sword. Um, it's allowed it's allowed me to sort of pick pick up on things that you know. Let's let's take building a team or managing a team as an example. That's a skill you you learn with time. If you go down a traditional career path, you maybe you won't start off as a manager and then out of uni, but eventually two, three, four, five years in, you're maybe managing a small team and then a larger team, etc. If if you're interested in 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 managing. Um, but having, you know, having having to do it now, where you know we've raised some money, suddenly we have to build a team and, and, and make sure they're happy and productive and everyone's mm. well taken care of and 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 people work well together and uh, you know product momentum is up and, and collaboration is, is is good and people are happy. It's it's meant that you know we have a clean slate that we can we can go off of and we've had the luxury mm. of of. Of being able to look at best practice across multiple companies rather than just have to rely on my own personal experience from a prior role. So I can look at, say, you know, how, how do things work at three or four startups that I, I know people at? How do and, and and see, you know, how they deal with these things. 
um, and relying on, on, I think, your network to a big extent. Um, and then just trialing things and, and seeing what works. Do you think that you've had a heightened sense of imposter syndrome in any way because you didn't work in a technology company beforehand? I think, yes, definitely. I, I, it, it, I think it, being a founder, being a, you know, uh, there is some level of it, you know, when there's lots of firsts as a founder. I think it's such a unique job. There are lots of firsts, even if you have worked in, 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 a, in a company before. You know, how many people have, have, have raised funds for a company? It's just such a specific, uh, you know, experience. Um, how many people have, you know, had full sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, have negotiated salaries and equity and brought on team members? How many people have, uh, there's so many firsts and you don't know how to do it. And there is no playbook. There's, there are Twitter threads you can read. There are blogs you can read. Um, there's, uh, there's lots of material out there, um, but nothing beats you know jump you know diving in and, and doing it. Uh, and I actually think one of the biggest or most important skills for an early stage startup is just the ability to learn very quickly. I think that's probably one of the most underrated skills uh, for early stage startup, regardless of role or or, or um, sort of seniority. I think being able to just learn something new on the fly and adapt very quickly is, is invaluable. Have you been able to find a degree of separation between your own identity and the work of your startup? It's difficult. Um, I try. I actually, I've, 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 I think about this. Uh, I've thought about this very consciously, actually. Um, it's it's difficult because of how much time, you know, I, I've, in, you know, I invest in my work. The the line between work and life is very blurred, so as as I'm sure you can imagine. But uh, and not not in an unhealthy way. I just want to clarify. It's it's just when you're this passionate about what what you do, it's it's very difficult to to really break those personas down and and really separate them. I try to keep. I try to compartmentalize uh, at times, uh, especially when things are a bit more stressful. I try to com compartmentalize. But as far as identity, I think I think there are many facets to one's identity, and 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 you know there are certain aspects which do translate from your work to your personal life, uh, and 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 they should, and they're in in a good way. You know, maybe uh, I used to always. I'll give you a very silly example. I used to run late to sort of social events, but I, I never run late to meetings or, or try to never run late to meetings. And that's translated now into my personal life. And I think it's a good thing. But, uh, uh, but you know, on the other hand, there are things, you know, there are, there are benefits to being able to sort of separate the two. Um, and in, in some ways for me, there, I've almost deliberately separated some aspects of my my two identities, let's say the personal and the work identity, you know, thinking that maybe that was for the best. Uh, so when I came to the UK, I actually came here as a, as a refugee. Um, and I thought that that might not be the best sort of background for a founder. Uh, and so I kept that separate. Um, <laughs> and I tried to sort of not really focus too much on it. But uh, in in some ways it actually, is a big reason why I am perseverant, for example, or I am, I am, um, you know, I have this 
this this drive and this ambition uh, in in a lot of ways. So even though I, I felt like maybe I should be separating that, it did trickle through uh, in, in some shape or form. Is there still a part of you that tries to separate it now? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't open with it. Uh, I don't say, hi, Rami, CEO, refugee. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think, so, I mean, one, one big thing that's happened recently for me is I, I just about, uh, you know, I think a week or two ago, I became a British citizen. So, in some ways, that chapter is closed, but you know it'll forever be part of my history. But uh, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm. I feel a bit more comfortable. Talk, you know, I feel more comfortable sharing and 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 it being part of my identity, regardless of whether that's in work or in in in, in personal sort of side of things. Uh, but early on, it was difficult because you feel like, well, when you look at when you look at you know business people, let's say, uh, you see, you know, CEOs who are very, you know, dressed nicely and in suits and it's always very formal, you know, you don't want to, and then you, when you think about refugee, it's, it's a very different image. And so it's very hard to consolidate those images together. Uh, but, uh, here we are. <laughs> now they're slightly more consolidated. Have you, Yeah. have you seen any advantages to mixing the two other than the kind of unconscious mm. where you're perhaps more perseverance i think it helps as far as 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 far as hiring i think having the awareness you know of of of, of for for diversity and and really across any sort of measure here whether we're talking gender diversity or ethnic backgrounds or, or age or uh, education whatever it is i think it really uh, my, I think it helps me see the, the value and the importance of it, having seen what me being sort of, uh, you know, from a diverse background, what I bring to the table, I can sort of see why uh, diversity is by all means a good thing uh, for business outcomes. Because a lot of the times people kind of think that diversity is something that you do for diversity's sake, but actually there's a much deeper, much more meaningful reason here um, and you can really, you know, for, for those doubters, there's also a business reason here. Uh, you know, if, if they're not convinced uh, on, on a, human, uh, in a human personal level, there's, there's a business case for, for diversity. And I think having consolidated those two identities, for me, I see the value in, in that, uh, or I've seen the value in that uh, firsthand. Has it worked the other way at all? Have there been any disadvantages to the, oh, yeah. the two being closer oh, yeah. together? Yeah, I mean... When we were fundraising, I one of the things I I wanted was to to um, well, well one of the things I I didn't want to lose out on was uh, pitching to U.S. investors, um, and so uh, I tried to get a visa. They said no <laughs> to go to the U.S. Um, it is it is a, you know it's a very uh, luckily well. Not luckily, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go that far. But the silver lining for us with COVID was that fundraising moved to Zoom, and so uh, it it kind of it it almost solved that problem for me uh, in a very weird way. But uh, you know, it was just pre-COVID. It was just pre-COVID when um, we were just about to go out to raise. We actually postponed that race because of COVID. But we were. It was just pre-COVID. We were just about to go out to raise, and I was like, well, I would love to find a lead investor who's in the US because uh, that'll just be advantageous for us. 
Uh, maybe it's a bit too soon. Maybe we can find the lead for the A uh, that's that's in the US, that's a US investor, but you know, it's never too soon. Why not? Let's try. Um, but I just couldn't get the visa. <laughs> that is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so I'm I'm from Syria actually, uh, and and in the U.S. they had this mandate. Uh, it was I think it was Trump at, at the time. Was it Trump? I think it was Trump. Um, he he has like a this blanket like rejection for anyone who's originally Syrian, um, and so I knew that going into the visa process, I was like, you know what? I don't care. I'm gonna try anyway. Uh, maybe maybe it works. Um, and the way the U.S. visa process works is that you have to go do this interview in person at the embassy, um, and they'll t give you a decision on the spot. Um, that's that's just how their visa process works. Uh, and so I went. I I waited in line, just queuing up. It was my turn. I had my interview, and I had a lot of you know uh, sporting documentation. I I said you know I'm I'm a startup founder. I want to go raise funds. I need I'm I want to be there for two weeks in SF. I'm going to book a bunch of meetings, talk to a bunch of people. It's going to hopefully economically benefit the U.S. as well as me. So win-win. Um, and then, you know, the the, the agent at, at the embassy uh, really sympathized with me. Um, and uh, she rejected my my visa application because she had to, uh, because that was the, you weren't allowed to approve it. But she opened an appeal. And she told me, you know, I really think you should be in the U.S. I think it's 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 a shame if you don't go there. Um, so she opened this appeal and she said that it's a very long shot and I'll probably take, I'll probably become British and then be able to go there before the appeal even gets resolved. But she wanted to do it as, you know, as a matter of principle. And I was like, well, sure, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going anytime soon, am I? And she said, no. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was uh, this a uh, bit of a disconnect, I guess, between sort of uh, regulation sometimes and, and, and more practical sort of and the, and the people I guess what other infrastructure infrastructure is the wrong phrase but what other have there been any other barriers that have come up against you that seem really trivial um, I, I, I think the, the, most of the barriers were really on in, in my personal life and I think in some ways you know will affect you know, affect me, right? Uh, and, and my performance outside of just my personal life. Um, it's really, I think the biggest thing was just travel, just being able to go see my parents. That was something that was quite difficult um, because I needed visas to go anywhere. Uh, and it was just, you know, I went for, I think, three years without seeing them. Um, and it was, it was very difficult. I just, there was nothing I could do in that. One point, um, my dad had COVID um, and he was in the hospital. He was hospitalized. Uh, it was quite a severe case of COVID and I didn't have any, I couldn't go and do it. I just couldn't see him. Um, not that I would have been let in, but you know, had things taken a, a, a turn for the worse, there was, I couldn't even go and be there with my family. Luckily he, he survived and he's, he's a, a lot better now, but uh, it takes an emotional toll on you. It's just a stress, you know, it's just stress. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that was probably the biggest uh, thing. We also learn so much from our parents and their working lives as we come of age. Mm. We mm -hmm. soak in their experiences and we copy the things that we like and we, and we don't copy the things that we don't like. There must have been mm. gaps that weren't filled in there for you. Yeah, I mean, my, my dad was, was actually, 
he's very entrepreneurial. He had his own business uh, in Syria. Um, and I think that was probably a big part of my motivation to, you know, it, it was a big influence in my life and a big part of why I always wanted to do my own thing. But building a business in Syria is very different to building a business outside of Syria, let me tell you. Um, to give you a, an idea of what I mean, the, the, the legal and the financial infrastructure is just non-existent to a big extent and, and very primitive. And, you know, the way you handled sort of, uh, let's say, let, invoicing, very, very basic example. Um, you just, um, everyone keeps record, you know, everyone keeps a record of account and, with, you know, you'll keep a record with your suppliers and no one pays anyone and it's just like, well, I owe you this much, you owe me that much and we'll figure out at some point. And you just net it off uh, over time. And, you know, once in a while you'll settle the books, but uh, it's very trust-based and it's all about, you know, your reputation in the market rather than, well, here's an invoice and it needs to be paid in 30 days. Um, <laughs> so that's, I guess, one big difference. And the other thing is we didn't have a stock market in Syria um, till I think, I think 2012. So the concept of equity and, and capital and it was very foreign to me and it was very exciting. Um, and when I, when I was, I think 16 or 17, I found out about the stock market. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was, I think it was around 2013. Uh, and I, I just stumbled across Tesla and I, I looked and I, I studied electrical and electronic engineering just for, for reference. And I, I was always passionate about cars. And so I saw this thing where they were launching a, a new car called the Model S and their stock price was around like $30. And I looked at my dad and I was like, this is gonna be huge. And, can, and I asked him, can we, like, can we buy some shares? And he looked at me and he was like, well, let's pretend we've bought some shares and let's check back in in a few months. Wow. And a few months later, the stock price was like $80 a, a share. And then at that point he was like, well, it seems like it is gonna be a thing. Uh, maybe we should buy some some shares. And we bought a very small amount of shares, um, Tesla shares in 2013, uh, which is how I, I, that was my sort of, that's how I learned about capitalism and, and the markets and equity. We forget that work lives on top of an infrastructure that was created by the people that have <laughs> gone before us. Uh, it's interesting yeah, that you're, yeah. um, you're building a company that in some way provides a level of infrastructure um, for for other companies. Yeah, I think I think the big vision with Compose, you know, Compose today is this inbox where, you know, someone can jump in, connect their accounts, and suddenly have a supercharged inbox experience across all these apps. But really, our our big vision here is to build the infrastructure for collaboration and communication. You know, today every app, every product has some core UVP. Let's take Notion, for example. Uh, their core value prop is the page and the block. If you're familiar with Notion, you, 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 know, you know what I mean. Uh, but then they needed to build that inbox on top. It was, it was you know, it wasn't their, you know, they're not delivering value. It's, it's more a table stake that they need to provide to, to support that core experience, right? Um, and down the line, we think, you know, we want to, we want to build the equivalent of, of Stripe for payments, but for, for inboxing. <laughs> um, so, you know, the next notion in, in five years time, it should be a no brainer that they just use the Compose SDK 
and suddenly their users have this supercharged inbox experience and they don't have to build it. Um, and it's built into their product. And, and the user gets you know, one inbox, they can sort of click and jump into that, that app. You know? um, and it, it's just so obvious. It's like, it's like Stripe today, no one, no one rolls their own payment, you know, payment infrastructure. It's just ridiculous. No one, no one does their own payments. <laughs> um, and it should be that, that ludicrous in five years. No one should build their own inbox. In just to deliver notifications and 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 uh, messages. Yeah. If you, um, what would you do differently if you were leaving university now? I think, and this is, I'm I'm going to plug uh, something uh, that I, I I found recently, which I love. Uh, I think one of the things a lot of people who leave university don't see the startup world as as an option at all um they don't you know no one you know especially if you're not going to start something no one sees it as a career path you know joining a startup when you think about it at least for me my my university experience uh you know even though we studied engineering the main sort of career paths were finance and consulting uh i think just due to being in london um and you know, some some brave few went on to do sort of further engineering uh, uh, work or academics, um, but no one looked at the startup world as a career path. And I think that's something that more people should do. People graduating university today should look at uh, univer- at uh, startups as as that route. Um, and actually, we we recently worked with this company called Jumpstart. They're based here in the UK and. What they do is they they build that third option for university graduates. So they'll go and do all that sort of recruitment, on-campus events, et cetera, that the banks and the consultancies do, but for startups. And then they match those graduates. They they, they vet them. Then they set up uh, this uh, spot, startup spotlights where the startup pitches to the graduates. Um, and then they, they, they do this sort of matchmaking and, and uh, graduates can sort of go straight from university into a startup uh, career. Uh, we actually, one of our team members, Edward, joined us through Jumpstart and he's, he seems to love it. He tells me he loves it. Um, and I actually spoke to the founder of Jumpstart and, I, and I'm and i a big fan of what they're doing. I think it's something that's, you know, I wish I'd seen at, at, at university. Um, and I, and I, I know for a fact, a lot of my uh, colleagues at university would have loved to have seen. Thank you so much for sharing your your personal story and Compose's story. Um, it's, My pleasure. It's been really special hearing it, man. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The Best Work podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.